You're listening to Ohio V, The World, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 14, the penultimate second to last episode of season two of Ohio v. The World, and today we're talking about Ohio versus peace. We'll be talking about the Dayton Peace Accords, the peace treaty signed, negotiated in Dayton, Ohio that ended the gruesome, bloody, terrible Bosnian War of the 1990s in the former Yugoslavia. Our guest today will be Ohio State history professor Teodora Dragostinova. Professor Dragostinova uh, is a specialist in Eastern European history. Originally from Bulgaria herself, she moved to the United States in the late 1990s. She's a wealth of knowledge. We're so glad she was able to join us. We've got to remind you guys about the Columbus Podcast Festival. We will be doing our season finale on Sunday, May 13th at 8.30 p.m. That's at the Short North Stage on High Street in the Short North. We will be closing out the festival. We are the final show on Sunday night. It's a four-day festival. Go get your tickets, columbuspodcastfestival.com. You can do $40 for the whole weekend or just pay 20 bucks for the single-day Sunday tickets. We need our fans there. It's going to be super fun. I should be there around 6 o'clock. We'll have a couple beers. We can chat history uh, and check out the live show. It'll be uh, with our special guest will be Mark Lucas, comedian here in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Mark doesn't know what the topic's going to actually be, but the name of the episode is Ohio versus Punishment. And again, buy your tickets, ColumbusPodcastFestival.com. You can find that info on our Facebook and ticket information. Come see us. It'll be our last show for a few months until season three, and we are really looking forward to to doing a live show uh, in front of all our fans. Tickets are going really fast, guys, especially the full weekend ones are almost sold out. Um, I know Saturday and Thursday are almost sold out. So grab your tickets for uh, just a Sunday show if you have to, 20 bucks, and we'll see you there, the Short North Stage in Columbus, Ohio. Today we're going to be talking about Ohio versus peace. I've got to intro this topic because it's something that I had to study very hard. I didn't know much about the war uh, in the former Yugoslavia, the Bosnian War, which we'll be focusing on today, which really went from about 1991 until the Dayton Peace Accords here in, in Ohio resolved the conflict in 1995. The former Yugoslavia is a place that the United States went to war two different times uh, in in the 1990s, yet it's not very talked about. Uh, And I want to figure out why. What was this conflict? Why did it take us so long to intervene? One of the reasons people don't focus on it, even when it was happening, was because it's complicated. There's these ethnic struggles, these religious struggles, and there's three different countries involved, really more than three, uh, if you count Slovenia. But from west to east, you have Croatia, the Catholic Yugoslavians. In the middle, you have the Bosnians, a majority of Muslim uh, Yugoslavians who who really bore the brunt of this war as they were in between the warring Croatians and to their east, the Serbians. They practice an Eastern uh, Eastern Orthodox religion, um, and the the Serbians always seemed to be the villains here. 
in that. I'm not going to dissuade you from that, but really all three parties played a role in the ethnic cleansing, the death of well over 100,000 people, the displacement of over 2 million refugees. It really was the, the Syria of its day, um, and we'll see some of those parallels when we talk to Professor Dragostinova. We're going to be talking about Dayton, Ohio today. We're going to be talking about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where these negotiations in the winter of 1995 took place that solved this war, the first major European war uh, in the last 25 years, and really the first major European war since World War II. And we've got to talk about the peace process, and we'll go through that. We'll also, um, we'll also look at the war itself, because you have to understand how we even got to the point that we did, that we ended up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. Um, you know, thousands of those refugees live here in the United States now. I had a, a number of them who went to, I went to college with, um, and I just didn't know anything about it. So I'm going to learn you guys up um, just on this podcast so you don't, have to, you don't have to do it on your own, but it's something we should know about. Because this war was on European soil, this kind of barbarism, where civilians were targeted. The, it really shows the thin veneer of civilization. We have this idea, this comfort that that's, we live in a civilized world in the 21st century. This was less than 25 years ago, where there's wars in the streets among people who looked and acted the exact same. In many cases, spoke the exact same language. It shows the powerful nature, the evil nature of nationalism, something that we've seen a, a market rise in here in, in the last few years. But today we'll get to the bottom of how a war like this could happen after the Cold War. What took the United States so long to get involved? How peace was finally meted out at Dayton, Ohio, and the role that the city of Dayton played in the, in the negotiations. Another guest today will talk about the importance of, of maps, how these final days of the negotiations came down to the technology of GIS and, and digital, digital cartography. We'll talk to our friend Eric Labeo, who's a GIS consultant, Geographic Information Systems, um, and Eric's going to tell us about those final days of the negotiations and the importance of technology uh, that played to get this peace deal done in Dayton, Ohio, in November of 1995. Our beer for the episode, uh, today we are going to be going out to Yellow Springs, Ohio, just, uh, just outside of Dayton. There's an amazing brewery there, Yellow Springs Brewery. Uh, you can check them out, yellowspringsbrewery.com. They do tours. But today we're drinking their boat show. It's an IPA. It's one of these citrusy IPAs. That you're seeing more and more of. It really is um, a, a fast-growing field. And the reason is because they're really good beers. They get you that citrusy, uh, lighter flavor, but they put it in a full-bodied IPA. Uh, and the Boat Show 7% uh, is an amazing uh, IPA beer, like I said, uh, 7% with a you know kind of a moderate uh, bitterness score, but a really good beer. And, and you'll see Yellow Springs around uh, the state of Ohio. They make really solid beers. Go to yellowsprings.com. Yellowspringsbrewery.com. Uh, it's the hometown of Dave Chappelle, the comedian. It's a, it's a hippie town just outside of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, really cool place to do a day trip. And they do do tours of the brewery, and they have a tap room there in, in the facility. So look them up, yellowspringsbrewery.com. But let's get to it. Today we're going to be talking about the Bosnian War, the role that Ohio played in solving this terrible conflict. And we'll be talking about episode 14 Ohio versus peace. In 
Today we'll spend this, this entire episode in two different places. In Dayton, Ohio, where the Dayton Peace Accords were signed in 1995, and we'll spend the rest of the time in Yugoslavia, in the former Yugoslavia, looking at the Bosnian War. But before we set up that war and how things got just so bad in, in southeastern Europe, we're going to go out to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It's the home of the United States Air Force Museum, um, and, and it's a really cool place. It's the site of where the Dayton Peace Accords were signed, negotiated, um, and, and you know it's here that Richard Holbrook, the chief negotiator, uh, convinces the Clinton administration to go, where to take the peace talks. Um, there's, and we'll talk about why did they choose Dayton, places like Geneva, places like New York City, Washington, D.C., um, and how, how things ended up at Wright Pat. And it's here that Ohio would help end a war. We found a little promo video from, I don't know, the late 1990s of Wright Patterson Air Force Base, a huge facility. And like I said, you got to go check out the Air Force Museum there. Really, really cool place. Uh, and one of the best museums in the state of Ohio. Dayton, Ohio is an innovation epicenter, home to thousands of patents affecting nearly every part of life. But perhaps most famously, it's the birthplace of aviation. Ray Patterson Air Force Base takes its name from two airfields that originated nearly 100 years ago. The area we now call Area A was originally designated Patterson Field, named after Lieutenant Frank Patterson, a test pilot in the early years of the base. Area B was named Wright Field, named after the Wright Brothers. In 1948, the newly formed United States Air Force combined the fields and Wright-Patterson Air Force Base was born. Today, Wright-Patterson is home to more than 26,000 active duty military, civil service, and contractor employees. It's Ohio's largest single site employer and the sixth largest employer in the state. In fact, 35 to 40 percent of the annual Air Force budget flows through Wright-Patterson. Historians always point towards Serbian nationalism, the country of Serbia. And like we said, it goes from west to east, left to right. The war is really between three countries, Croatia on the left, um, the Catholic country. In the middle, you have Bosnia, where a lot of the war took place, where both sides were at war with Bosnia uh, to take over space. Uh, and Bosnia, which is majority Muslim. And on the right was Serbia. All these countries uh, were, were, in a, were in the country known as Yugoslavia, following World War I and, and following World War II. But Serbian nationalism has been a part of the 20th century uh, that we're all familiar with. The same goes for Sarajevo, a, a city that we'll spend a lot of time in, the Bosnian capital city of Sarajevo, the site of the 1984 Winter Olympics but also the site of the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is where Serbia, which is where Bosnia and the city of Sarajevo were located prior to World War II or World War I in 1914. The assassin was a man named Gavrilo Princip, a young revolutionary, a Serbian nationalist. He kills the Archduke uh, and his wife. He shoots them both on June 28th, 1914. It touches off the First World War, uh, and it's really between, the First World War starts between Serbian and, and Austria-Hungary. The alliances between these nations, the German Empire, uh, led by you know, Kaiser Wilhelm I, 
is tied by alliances to, the, to their neighbors, the Austro-Hungarians. The Serbians are protected by the French. They're also protected by Russia and Tsar Nicholas II. These alliances and the negotiations over the next six weeks fail, and the world goes to just the nastiest war of all time. We talk about World War I in our fifth episode, Ohio versus Death, uh, the fifth episode of our first season. Go back and listen to that one about Eddie Rickenbacker to learn more about the war. But it was here in Sarajevo that Serb nationalism really takes hold. Serbian nationalism is, is something that we'll talk a lot about today. We ask our guest, Professor Dragostinova, about the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, Serb nationalism, and the start of World War I. Most important historical events of recent history, definitely of the 20th century. Uh, and it's one of the big serendipities in history because, as we know, uh, Franz Ferdinand went to Sarajevo despite warnings that he shouldn't go because he actually very um, um, unfortunately visited the city on a Serbian national holiday. Uh, and by that, he also triggered the reaction of Serbian nationalists who have been plotting his assassination. Now, why were they plotting his assassination? Because Franz Ferdinand, Ferdinand had the ambition to reform Austria-Hungary in order to be able to sort of like contain and manage the various nationalist movements that were developing uh, in the empire during this time period. But he also had this idea of reforming the empire to to basically give um, its Slavic people autonomy within the empire. And by that, he angered the Serbs because for the Serbs, that was a plot to neutralize Serbian nationalism, which was envisioning the unification between Bosnia, which at the time was under the administration of Austria-Hungary, and Serbia, the Serbian kingdom, which was independent, but which wanted to enlarge its territory. And this is what triggered all of these events uh, that led to the ultimatum that Austria-Hungary gave to Serbia, six weeks of negotiations in which all the major belligerents armed themselves and mobilized their troops, and then in the end, by uh, July-August, everyone entered the war. Yugoslavia has three main religions. And again, the countries we talk about from left to right, the Catholic Croats, the Muslim Bosnians, known as Bosniaks, and to the east, the Eastern Orthodox Serbians. All of them lived in this country of Yugoslavia. We ask our, our guest professor uh, about those different religious divides. So the Serbs, most, most Serbs uh, traditionally have been Eastern Orthodox. Uh, they became an independent kingdom, actually one of the early cases of nationhood in modern Europe in the early 19th century, one of the first uh, countries to break away from the Ottoman Empire uh, as early uh, as uh, the, the early uh, 19th uh, century. Uh, by contrast, the Croats, who largely inhabited territories within the Habsburg Empire, were Catholic, uh, and so were uh, the Slovenes, uh, who also became a part of the, um, of the original uh, first uh, Yugoslavia. 
Now, what is interesting is because many of these territories had been under the rule of the Ottoman Empire for centuries, since basically the 14th century, and the Ottoman Empire is, as we know, one of the greatest Muslim empires, many people in Bosnia in particularly converted to Islam as early as the 14th and 15th century. So there's a large group of indigenous Muslims local to this area who also predominantly lived in Bosnia. And therefore we have this complicated religious and ethnic makeup where you have the Serbs, Croats, Slovenes and others and then people belonging to different religions including Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism uh, and uh, 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 Islam, but they're also Jews, they're also Armenians, they're also Lutherans, mm. they're all sorts of other religions. These ethnic and religious squabbles in, the, in Yugoslavia were boiling over for years. But in World War II, Yugoslavia is invaded and taken over by the Nazis, like many of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe, and even parts of Western Europe. Um, and as in many countries, the Nazis find a sympathetic government, mostly of Croats, the Croats helped the Nazis, and they persecuted Serbs. It's something that they would never forget, the Serbians. Um, the Croats had a, a, took over the government with the help of the Nazis. They had a checkered flag that they used. It was a symbol for the struggle you know, in the Civil War that we talk about in the 1990s. The Croatian flag would bring back that checkered flag, although they wouldn't have the same Nazi tendencies. Um, that flag would still cause a, lot, cause a lot of scars in the former Yugoslavia. Some 36,000 Nazi soldiers die in Yugoslavia during the war. Um, but it brings about the rise of Joseph Bronz uh, Tito. Tito is the one who helps expel the Nazis. And they don't do it through, you know, the help of the Americans or the British or the Russians. The Yugoslavians do it on their own. And Tito takes power. He starts a, a, a very communist nation, a very friendly to Russia nation. Uh, but we ask our, our guest about President Tito. That after the war, it was the communist-affiliated partisans of Josef Broz Tito who managed to ultimately <laughs> liberate the country from the Nazis without Soviet help. Uh, by, the, by uh, developing an extremely sophisticated resistance network and that gave them credibility after the war. So they managed to resurrect the country, to build it up again and they recreated uh, Yugoslavia again as a, as a federal state. But they ultimately managed to create a new system of government which brought these nationalities together after World War II that had torn them apart. Um, so Tito rules from, from when to when, approximately? So from 1945 to 1980, when right. he passed away. Yugoslavia is communist under Tito when he dies in 1980. The world of control that these ethnic, these religious uh, differences, they're really put to bed during the Tito years. But in the 80s, as we see the fall of communism at the end of the decade, uh, the world in Yugoslavia that Tito built begins to crumble. We ask our, our guests about the 1980s, um, and we ask her, you know, how all these different ethnic and religious differences boil to the surface. So when Tito died, because Tito, as you correctly pointed out, was able to keep it all together under his firm uh, control, when he died, you have this splintering. 
within uh, Yugoslavia, these republics and, and the leadership of the republics, uh, the different republics asking for more and more rights, for more and more autonomy, and, and this is connected to the rise of nationalism. And in fact, when Tito died, the first explosion of nationalism occurred in Kosovo where you have the Albanian population, the Kosovars, right, who were now de demanding more rights after the death uh, of, uh, of, um, uh, of Tito. So what we are seeing is that, yes, we have the rise of Serbian nationalism with Milosevic, but it was part of a bigger trend, a rise of nationalism everywhere in each one of the federal uh, republics of Yugoslavia. The late 1980s see the fall of communism and the rise of nationalism in Yugoslavia and sees the rise of a man named Slobodan Milosevic. A name you might remember, He's, he becomes the Serbian prime minister, and he would later become a war criminal. He would die in custody in The Hague in, in the mid-2000s. But Slobodan Milosevic plays a huge role in this story. He rises from, from you know, being a cabinet member to taking over uh, the Serbian state and really taking over the Yugoslavian state, which was headquartered in the Serbian city of Belgrade. You know, despite his staunch efforts to try and keep Yugoslavia united, he would also play the largest role in its splintering. We talked to our guest, Professor Dragostinova, about the rise of Milosevic. He's very, very um, shrewd, uh, very um, manipulative. He knew how to write this populist, nationalist tide. He knew how to mobilize the population behind the fear that now the Albanians are going to take our Kosovo, so we need to come together as Serbs. And ultimately, I believe it's uh, that speech you're referring to in 1987, in which he gathered one million Serbs on Kosovo Pole, this, um, this site of a battlefield in Kosovo, where uh, the Serbs had been defeated by the Ottomans, and he said, "We, I will never allow Serbia to be defeated again. And this was his triumph, and this is when he actually managed to uh, sort of like consolidate his power uh, and to mobilize many Serbs behind his message. Milosevic comes to power in Serbia in the late 1980s. He takes control of the Yugoslavian army and the government. Uh, it, it's a post-Cold War surge in nationalism like we talked about, and it leads to the election of nationalist leaders like Franz Tudjman in Croatia. He brings back that checkerboard flag we talked about and declares Croatia's independence. I want to suggest a great documentary in ESPN 30 for 30 called Once Brothers about this period of time of Croatian independence uh, and their oncoming war with Serbia. It's the story of Drazen Petrovic, an all-NBA player from Croatia, uh, one of the great first foreign-born NBA players, and the breakup of his great friendship with Vladi Divac, an NBA all-star uh, from Serbia. And they had a great national team. Yugoslavia is, is a fantastic basketball country. But check out that documentary, Once Brothers. You can find it on YouTube or on ESPN. Slovenia, the most European you know, uh, province here in Yugoslavia, west uh, of Croatia, all the way to the left, the closest to Europe and the most European, this Catholic province breaks away. Milosevic and, and the Serbians and the Yugoslav army have a 10-day war, but the Yugoslav government makes a deal and allows Slovenia to become its own independent country. It's quickly recognized by the European community. You know, some, only like 60 soldiers die on both sides of the, in the Slovenian-Yugoslav uh, war. But the Yugoslavians decide to draw a line in the sand 
at Croatian independence, which happens so simultaneously with the Slovenians. And the Serb-Croat War breaks out in 1991. This is the start of the conflict that would lead us to the Dayton Peace Accords. We ask our guests to talk about this independence movements in the summer of 1991. Everywhere you start having free elections, right? This is sort of like the hallmark of democracy. We are now going to be able to vote for our election, for our politicians. We don't need to just have appointed communists anymore. So you have elections in each one of the federal republics of Yugoslavia, and these elections bring to power nationalists. It's the case in Serbia, it's the case in Croatia, it's the case in Slovenia. Everywhere you have this tide. And this is what triggered this referenda in both Slovenia and Croatia that declared independence, right? Uh, and ultimately led to the disintegration of uh, Yugoslavia. The case of Serbia is very interesting. So Serbia um, uh, uh, is at the center of the federation, but also it is Serbs who control the federal army, the Yugoslav army. It is Serbian generals who are basically in charge of the all Yugoslav army. So the all Yugoslav army becomes a tool for Serbian nationalism. They are riding the tide of Serbian nationalism because they are ultimately saying, well, we want to keep Yugoslavia together because they are all of these Serbs in Croatia, they are all of these Serbs in Bosnia, we need to protect them. And this is why they think they have the legitimacy to send the Yugoslav army to protect the Serbs, because they're protecting supposedly um, the integrity of Yugoslavia, but it's ultimately uh, a Serbian nationalist movement. The war between Croatia and Serbia grows violent right away. Bosnia, which is in between the two countries and has a large number of, of Bosnian Croats and Bosnian Serbs, becomes the major battleground. There's condemnation from the United States and the United Nations and Europe, but there's very little involvement. But why not? It's a European war, a European ground and air war. It's clear that ethnic cleansing is taking place. Citizens are being, civilians being killed uh, by the hundreds and even thousands. But the U.S. doesn't get involved. We ask uh, our guests why the world's only superpower doesn't enter the war at this point. We're going to play you... We're going to play you three clips before we hear from, from our guest. And the first is quickly from Secretary of State James Baker in 1992 at the beginning of the war. And then second is quickly from Clinton's Secretary of State Warren Christopher, who we'll hear more from. And the last clip, the longer clip, is from President George Bush. It's during the 1992 presidential debate. He's on stage with Ross Perot and, and the future president, Bill Clinton. And a question is asked about why he hasn't intervened in the Bosnian War. There will be no unilateral use of United States force. As we have said before, we are not and we cannot be the world's policemen. The United States is not prepared uh, to put uh, ground troops uh, into Bosnia in order to uh, resolve or impose a solution onto the conflict there. Because I learned something from Vietnam. I am not gonna commit U.S. forces until I know what the mission is, till the military tell me that it can be completed, until I know how they can come out. We are helping. American airplanes are helping today on humanitarian relief for Sarajevo. But when you go to put somebody else's son or daughter into war, I think you've got to be a little bit careful and you have to have, be sure 
that there's a military plan that can do this. You have ancient ethnic rivalries that have cropped up as, as Yugoslavia is dissolved or getting dissolved, and it isn't going to be solved by sending in the 82nd Airborne. I think this is a great question to ask President Bush while we still can ask him this question, and I hope that someone has asked him this question. I have to imagine that fatigue uh, of war uh, plays a role here. I mean, after, uh, as you mentioned, it's after the first Iraq war, uh, and most likely uh, reluctance to engage in another military conflict plays a large role here. But also, we have to remember that it's not just the United States, it's also the European countries, especially Germany, um, in the aftermath uh, of the fall of the Berlin Wall, in the aftermath of the reconstitution of Germany as a unified state. Ultimately, all of these countries believe in self-determination and they believe that they need to support independence. And this is ultimately what... Um, uh, sort of like um, by supporting the independence of Croatia and Slovenia, the European powers as well, they're left without any choice. What are they going to do if you're going to support the independence of a country and then you have to let them solve that issue, right? So it's, it's a very complicated question and probably, uh, uh, I mean, there's still a lot to be researched there. Bosnia and its capital, Sarajevo, become the center of the war. As the Serbians and the Croats battle with the Bosnian army and the militia over the you know, territory claimed outside of that, the Serbians and the Bosnians go to war over the city of Sarajevo. It's much closer to Serbia in the east. Uh, it's in Bosnia. But we asked Professor Dragostinova just about the demographics of Bosnia because it was such a mixed culture. Um, and they're all fighting to protect this nationalism. They're fighting to protect the Serbians who live in Bosnia or being, you know, moved out of their areas and being, you know, terrified by the Bosnian government. So the Serbians have to move in to protect them and take over that land. And the same with the Croats in the West. The Croatian, uh, the Croat Serbs, you know, are having the same struggles with the aggressive Bosnian armies. And But we asked her just about the demographics of Bosnia and another reason why this conflict is so complicated. On the eve of the war, 44% Muslims, 34%, or excuse me, 31% Serbs and 17% Croats. Wow, so it is a, a real mixed, mixed bag. It is, but as you can see that the Muslims are in the majority. Now, those Muslims don't necessarily identify themselves as Muslims. Many of them think about themselves as Yugoslavs. And the label Yugoslav and the strength of Yugoslav identity just, I mean, remains very strong in Bosnia in particular, because many people in Bosnia think about themselves as Yugoslavs rather than Croats, Serbs, Catholics, or Eastern Orthodox Muslims. We talk about this, the thin veneer of civilization that we all live under, this idea that, that we are such a civilized people now. But to go back and look at the city of Sarajevo, the Bosnian capital, um, Nowhere is, is the thin veneer this, and just how close we are to barbarism and war. Uh, nowhere is that more evident than in Sarajevo. People of all religions and ethnicities live there. It's, it's the ultimate melting pot. You know, the Winter Olympics are there in 1984, held in Sarajevo. 1984. We're talking about seven, eight years before this city is you know, the subject of the longest siege of a major city in modern history. It's under siege for, for almost four years, beginning, you know, in April of 92 and going until the peace agreement's finalized in 96. It's the front line of the war. 
In June 1992 alone, nearly 1,800 people die in Sarajevo, a major European city, mostly civilians. Many people are trapped by the Bosnian paramilitaries that, that encircle the city, shelling from the hills you know, surrounding the city, killed just indiscriminately. There's Sniper Alley, as it's called, on the city's you know, near west side, uh, a terrifying area where snipers would set up in high-rise buildings, snipers on both sides, pick off soldiers, militia members, citizens, women, children, even members of the United States uh, and United Nations peacekeepers. You, know, you look at our, our cover photo, that burning, almost a skyscraper, you know, where missiles and artillery and rocket fire had just been blasted in this building, most likely going after a sniper or just simply for death and destruction. Nearly 14,000 people died in Sarajevo during the Bosnian War, 5,500 of which were civilians. We're going to play you a clip uh, about the siege of Sarajevo. Um, about the bombings uh, that took place, it, it, you know, when the war starts and it really goes in full force in Serbia in 92, we'll talk about the snipers. And we ask our guest, Professor Dragostinova, about the city of Sarajevo and its tragic, tragic story in the 1990s. In the two days since the United Nations withdrew from the airport, the city has been under almost constant bombardment. The firing has gone both ways since it is not defenseless, but we have watched as the Serbs, in effect, walked their mortar fire across Sarajevo and onto the old town. And then at lunchtime today... A round fell directly in the middle of the main shopping street. In spite of everything, people do go out in large numbers at this time of day and the mortar claimed its victims at random among them. This is the second time there has been an attack of this kind, and it has to increase the pressure for outside armed intervention. Nothing else is working. This was the same street a short time later. The dead and the injured had been taken away. The mortar bombs kept on falling. To say that the daily life of these people is intolerable is understatement. There is no safe place or time. The main street in New Sarajevo this morning, one of the most active snipers' corners in the city. A group of civilians has been hit by sniper fire. Two of them are dead. A policeman lies on a wounded woman to protect her from further injury. Bosnian forces return fire. The UN is on the scene, for this is part of the so-called protected corridor. It's a small incident, only a fraction of what happens in the city at a time of fierce and intermittent warfare, as the airlift continues under gunfire. And what happens in the city is only a fraction of what happens in the country. The truth has never been harder to know than now. The heaviest fighting has apparently been in the town of Garajde, 45 miles southeast of here, According to government reports, 100,000 people are cut off there, including 30,000 refugees, 10,000 of them children. They are surrounded by Serbs with tanks and heavy artillery, who, according to these reports, are attacking. The people have no chance of escape or government forces of relieving them. So Sarajevo is really the poster child for the success of the second Yugoslavia of Tito is the place that is perhaps most successful in shoring up 
the Yugoslav identities of the population. It's an extremely cosmopolitan city. It's a city that basically you have many families of mixed origins who live together and who don't necessarily see themselves as Serbian, Croat, Bosnian, Muslim, whatever. They see themselves as Yugoslavs. And they see their city as the best example of what the ideal of Yugoslavism uh, uh, encapsulate. And this is the importance uh, of, uh, of the Olympics, as you mentioned, of the Winter Olympics of 1984. What the purpose behind uh, the Olympics ultimately was is to showcase the success of Yugoslavia as a project and the ability of the communist leadership of the country to create a uh, state, a country, a, a uh, um, uh, basically institutions in, in this country that are supported by the population as a whole. So it comes as a massive shock uh, when we have this, the siege of Sarajevo, when uh, Serbian paramilitaries are actually um, deliberately um, uh, targeting Sarajevo because why? They're trying to punish Sarajevo. They're trying to punish its cosmopolitanism. They're trying to punish these uh, people, uh, the inhabitants of Sarajevo, who are the supporters of the Yugoslav idea because now they're not pursuing that anymore. They're pursuing Serbian nationalism. horrified to watch as the phrase ethnic cleansing becomes part of the international lexicon. You might remember that phrase from when you were younger. It's kind of the forced displacement, in a lot of cases, executions of ethnicities from one area. You know, it, this war creates, the Bosnian war creates over 2 million refugees, much like this you know, Syrian conflict that we'll talk about later. You know, the Serbs are kicking out Muslims. The Croats are, are, are kicking out Serbs and Bosnians. Uh, and, and vice versa, it, go, it goes both ways. Um, although the Serbians uh, had more of the guns, more of the weapons, and people like General Mladic of the, of the Serbian paramilitaries um, really do a lot of this ethnic cleansing. We asked uh, our guest, the professor, about that word, that phrase, ethnic cleansing, and what it meant in the Bosnian War. So you have ethnic cleansing, and actually, even though the word ethnic cleansing is associated usually with the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s, the term ethnic cleansing historically emerged during World War II, when it was used to talk about, uh, when it was used to describe the cleansing of territories that the Croats uh, 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 executed, basically cleansing territories of Serbs during World War II. So it has this very interesting origin. Uh, the way it is used by journalists and policymakers in the context of not only, by the way, uh, the Bosnian War, but also the Croatian War, it involves the capturing of territories and the cleansing of ethnic elements that are seen as undesirable for the consolidation of power that the particular ethnic group wants to carry out in these territories. So when Croats uh, want to consolidate their power in Krajina, in Croatia, they ethnically cleanse the Serbs in this area. And when Serb paramilitaries are trying to cleanse territories uh, in, uh, um, uh, uh, in Bosnia, ultimately what they're doing is they're capturing territories and pushing out all populations that are either Muslim or Croat because they want these territories to become Serbian at the end of the war. 
We have evidence that all of the belligerent parties carried out policies of ethnic cleansing. However, if we look at the numbers of casualties, it's also clear that the Muslims are the ones that disproportionately, I believe that the figure is close to 70% of the casualties of the war are Bosnian Muslims. So because the Serbs uh, in Bosnia, the Bosnian Serbs uh, uh, of uh, Karadzic have the support of the Yugoslav army. They have the arms, they have the weapons, they have the equipment. They are able to actually carry out this ethnic cleansing more efficiently. They're the ones who perpetuate the largest number of crimes. Uh, the way it is used by journalists and policymakers in the context of not only, by the way, uh, the Bosnian war, but also the Croatian war, it involves the capturing of territories and the cleansing of ethnic elements that are seen as undesirable for the consolidation of power that the particular ethnic group wants to carry out in these territories. So when Croats uh, want to consolidate their power in Krajina, in Croatia, they ethnically cleanse the Serbs in this area. And when Serb paramilitaries are trying to cleanse territories uh, in uh, um, uh, uh, in Bosnia, ultimately what they're doing is they're capturing territories and pushing out all populations that are either Muslim or Croat because they want these territories to become Serbian at the end of the war. And in the summer of 1995, 8,000 men and boys attempt to escape the city of Srebrenica in July. The general, General Mladic of the Bosnian Serbs, a man now in jail for life as a war criminal, he carries down the hunting down in mass execution in the wooded areas and hills outside Srebrenica of Muslim, uh, Muslim men and boys. Word of the massacre gets out, and the United States, Bill Clinton, uh, is Secretary of State Warren Christopher, they, they can no longer not act. They start talking with NATO allies, uh, allies, but we talk about the importance and the devastation that was the city of Srebrenica and the executions. That is a wonderful question. So this is where we really see the impotence of these UN peacekeepers that we were discussing previously. This is a city designated as a safe zone. Safe zone of, under the protection of predominantly Dutch peacekeepers. And ultimately when Serbian paramilitaries arrived in this area, the Dutch did nothing to prevent them from separating the population men and boys separated from women and girls and taking them in small groups and larger groups to the woods and elsewhere, keeping them in a stadium overnight, but also starting those uh, shootings uh, uh, and uh, ultimately killing, as you indicated, around 8,000 people in the worst massacre in Europe at that point after World War Two. So it really showed the, um, the unsustainability uh, of the uh, way the world community was handling this this uh, uh, this conflict, and what is actually interesting is not interesting, but it's indicative that very soon, so the the uh, massacres in Srebrenica occurred in July of 1995. It is that uh, a month later, in August of 1995, that NATO forces began airstrikes. That was sort of like the last drop uh, that uh, um, convinced. Um, uh, the, the world community that something has to be done uh, to uh, come uh, to an end, to, to bring this conflict to an end. The shelling of Sarajevo's central market during peak shopping hours on a Saturday morning has shocked this city. 
It is the worst single incident, at least in Sarajevo, of the Bosnian Civil War. The market was strewn with mangled bodies, some decapitated. Severed limbs were everywhere. You can hear people screaming and crying at the outrage. This is something which is just horrible. And we all know, like so many times before, that it came from the Serb fascist positions. This massacre is cold-blooded murder made by Muslim leadership in order to blame Serbs. The second bombing of the market in Sarajevo uh, by the Serbians from the hills surrounding the city, it was the final straw. They had already bombed once, killing 67 people the summer before, in 1994. Uh, President Clinton, who already had negotiating teams, uh, you know, meeting with the Bosnians and the Serbs and the Croat leaders, as well as representatives of the European community, um, they had been begging the president for sustained aerial combat. Not just pinpricks, as the president of Bosnia says, but a sustained air raid. Srebrenica plus the market bombing, a second market bombing, I should say, that was enough to finally compel United States in NATO involvement. It's called Operation Deliberate Force. The United States leads 3,500 different missions, sorties as they're called, bombings of the Serbian positions in and around not just Sarajevo, but also in Serbia itself. August 1995, the United States military comes to the rescue of the Bosnians. Warplanes dropped anti-missile decoy flares as they carried out wave after wave of airstrikes. Flashes lit up the night sky around Sarajevo, and every few seconds we could hear the distant boom of explosions as the planes, some 60 of them in all, hit their targets. Air defense and radar installations, command and communication systems, ammunition dumps, and an arms factory, which created this huge mushroom cloud of smoke when it was destroyed. By dawn, though, the Bosnian Serbs had started to retaliate, shelling Sarajevo, mortars landing close to a UN base. Warning sirens wailed across the city, and its people scurried for cover, their radio station urging them to stay indoors. But even in broad daylight, NATO pressed ahead with their airstrikes relentlessly, warplanes firing their missiles, crisscrossing the skies over Sarajevo, and still dropping their decoy flares. NATO are not only using air power, but also the big guns of the Rapid Reaction Force up on Mount Igman. These British troops were on full alert today after they and their French colleagues had fired hundreds of shells at Bosnian Serb targets. They've been trying to take out the heavy weapons which the Serbs have used to cause such carnage in Sarajevo. Right now, once the airstrikes begin, uh, uh, led by NATO, but basically the United States in August 1995, uh, what it becomes clear is that now NATO will be intervening uh, in this conflict. So I do think that they pl that played a very important role in convincing the Serbs that they should start negotiating. Look, I know that was a lot of setup, a lot to learn, but this is where Ohio really gets heavily involved. You know, it's a war that goes so unstudied and grossly misunderstood by the West. 
Um, and I really did have to delve into it to understand it. We try to explain to you as best we can. But the bombing campaign from the United States and NATO, the increased gains on the ground by Croatians uh, and separately by Bosniak forces, the Bosnian Muslims, against the Serbians, finally changes the facts on the ground. It forces you know, a cessation of the bombing by the Serbs and really a ceasefire of the, after the U.S. bombings for a couple of weeks. A big step, you know, the lead negotiator, Richard Holbrook, Ambassador Holbrook, who we'll talk about uh, in this episode, uh, a big step is Slobodan Milosevic is given power to negotiate on behalf of the Bosnian Serbs. He's the president of Serbia. Um, but this is a huge breakthrough because dealing with the Bosnian Serbs is mostly crazy military leaders have no intentions of giving up the fight until they've cleared out all the Muslims, all the Croats, all the non-Serbians from the areas. That was a huge first step. Uh, but it's also proof that the NATO intervention was working, that the United States' involvement was finally making a change. And one of the first questions I wanted to ask the professor when we sat down was, why was the Dayton, Ohio picked for this? Why not Camp David or D.C. or Geneva or Paris or New York? You know, why the hell was the peace conference held in Dayton, Ohio? Um, and before we ask her, you know, we're going to talk about a speech in 2005 on the 10th anniversary. The late great diplomat Richard Holbrook, we talk about, makes a speech in Dayton uh, about their decision there. Go back and look. There's an amazing movie on HBO in 2015, a documentary called The Diplomat, about Richard Holbrook's career, made by his son, interviewing people from the Clinton administration. Uh, he ultimately served on the high up in the Obama State Department briefly before his sudden death. Uh, but it is a really cool movie to really look at high-stakes diplomacy, like we see in episode you know, 14 here, Ohio versus Peace. I suggest you go back and watch it. But we ask not just our guests, but we also ask Ambassador Holbrook, why Dayton, Ohio? Uh, so I believe this is uh, Richard Holbrook's idea. Richard Holbrook, who is the main negotiator, uh, negotiator uh, rep representing uh, the United States, a very experienced diplomat uh, uh, who uh, uh, tried to bring uh, together the three parties, the three parties being the Serbs, uh, the Croats, uh, and the representatives of the Bosnian Muslims. Uh, and uh, ultimately, um, so the Dayton Accords are also known as the Dayton slash Paris Accords, because as you mentioned, they were finalized in Paris. But to bring the parties together, to be actually able to force them to negotiate and reach an agreement, Holbrook decided that he really needs a location uh, that would not be conducive to anything else but work and negotiations. So a military base made sense, a military base in Ohio, where the parties were not allowed to leave. Uh, and also there is a, a lot of speculation out there that one of the reasons that this site was chosen had to do with the fact that they didn't want uh, the, the, the parties to have any distractions. If you bring them to Washington, D.C. for negotiations, there are abilities for them to get out and, you know, network, uh, talk to the media, um, go party if they wish to, or contact other people. The purpose here is to bring the main parties together at the base and not let them leave before they reach the peace. Most of the people in the White House and in the State Department wanted this negotiation to take place in Europe. The war was so terrible. It was tearing Europe apart. American diplomacy under both the Bush and Clinton administrations had been such a failure. European diplomacy had been such a failure. There was a feeling that um, 
We took too big a risk holding it on American soil. I took the opposite position. We were totally invested in controlling the negotiation, controlling the site, controlling the agenda uh, was absolutely essential to maximize our chances for success. And nine of the ten people in the National Security Council opposed this position, including the Secretary of State. But uh, to Warren Christopher's credit, even though he opposed holding in the U.S., he said he would back the negotiator. And he switched. Al Gore supported me from the beginning. And President Clinton said, let's do it in the U.S. And then we started looking for a site. And finally, my assistant, Rosemary Pauley, went out around the country looking. We wanted something fairly close to Washington, but not too close, away from the press, but accessible so we could fly senior officials out here as required. And we had no idea what we were getting in for. And she came back and said it's Wright-Patterson Air Base. So we came out here. So here we came to Dayton. It was wonderful. The Air Force did a fantastic job. They constructed barbed wire fences. They gave us security within security. We did everything you could ever want. There could not be, I'm sure Wolfgang Ischering would agree, it's not possible to conceive of better negotiating situation. Not possible. My friend and, and former guest on this show, Mike Albritton, uh, if you haven't, go back and listen to our, our last Dayton episode, uh, episode eight last season, Ohio versus Flight. Uh, Mike, a, a former uh, UD alum, goes back and tells us about the Wright Brothers. Really fun episode uh, that's gotten a lot of listens over the, over the last year or so. But he was in Dayton at the time, the University of Dayton. He joined a human peace chain that surrounded the large base, you know, Wright-Patterson, urging leaders there to seek peace. And what Holbrook and, and, and Secretary of State Warren Christopher didn't realize was the Midwestern charm of Dayton. You know, how Ohio's own ethnic diversity uh, would play such a role in this peace process, uh, people like Mike Albritton, citizens of Dayton, who got involved to hope for peace. You know, a Dayton that would claim itself to, to be the international home of peace. We listen to Richard Holbrook as he makes that same speech in 2005 in Dayton when he talks about the people of Dayton, the people of Ohio, and how they made a difference. What none of us expected was the city, the people. They were peace vigils. There were extraordinary manifestations of support. Uh, people formed a human link around the base. Some of you are probably here tonight. What, you didn't have enough people to quite surround it because it was about, I don't know, eight or 10,000 acres, but you did a pretty good job. Uh, every time we left the base, there were people with signs praying. People put candles in the windows. When we went to uh, restaurants in town, um, L'Auberge was the one we went to the most often. That um, was a pretty good restaurant. <laughs> uh, we uh, people would congratulate us. I walked into a restaurant once with Warren Christopher in town, and people stood and applauded him. Um, as I wrote here in the book, uh, Daytonians were proud to be part of history. Large signs at the commercial airports hailed Dayton as the temporary center of international peace. When we ventured into a restaurant, people crowded around saying they were praying for us. Families on the airbase placed candles of peace. A second point, 
Ohio's famous ethnic diversity was also on display. None of this, as Doris said, none of this was intended. All of it had a tremendous additional value. We did everything possible to emphasize the fact that in the American heartland here in Ohio, people from every part of southeastern Europe lived together in peace. Their competition restricted to softball games, church rivalries, and the occasional barroom fight. As the negotiations get underway in October of 1995, it's a process that's supposed to be only a couple of weeks. They basically set a 17-day limit, and that's extended to 20 and then to 21 days, which is the final amount of time it would take. But the progress is incredibly slow going. The Bosnian land is going to be split up. The country of Bosnia will exist, but its former land is going to be shared. The challenge is making a map of those controlled areas at the time of the ceasefire and making sure a settlement can be reached. The Bosnians demand that they have 51% of the land. You know, I love maps. I love just looking at maps. I've been that way. I can look at maps for hours, even when I was a kid. But maps play a huge role in the Dayton Peace Accords. And not just maps, but digital maps. The kind of Google Earth ways, you know, type maps that we now carry around in our pockets. In 1995, that technology was really only wielded by the U.S. government. We brought a friend into the show, Eric Labeo, a friend, a listener, an old high school friend of mine, uh, who's a GIS consultant, a modern cartographer. We talked to Eric about the importance of mapping uh, in the Dayton Peace Accords and how it helped lead to peace in Ohio. Yeah, oh, it's, it's huge. I mean, at the time, you've got to think there really isn't the ability to update maps quickly. You know, at this time, this is when GIS, you know, digital cartography is coming into form. Um, at, before that time, you're dealing with paper maps, um, it's something that would take a, a lot of manual, artistic, you know, very labor intensive. Um, and, and how do you measure things when you're dealing with paper? You know, it's a time consuming process. It's not digital. Um, so the fact that they could use digital mapping to, you know, at this time is huge. They were able to, in basically real time, and it sounds like a few hours at a time, given the technology, um, measure how much area belonged to which, uh, which side. Um, if, you, if you redraw the map, how does that change the boundary? How can we quickly redraw that boundary? You need digital cartography. You need GIS to do that. As we talked about, these negotiations were only supposed to be a little over two weeks. They're extended to 20 days. And even at that day 15, day 16, we're really no closer. There's some breakthroughs. Milosevic, who, who does make some concessions here, working closely with the United States, he concedes Sarajevo to the Bosnians. A huge breakthrough. A truly important move. Um, there was talk of you know, a planned partition of the city, a la Berlin following World War II. But an issue develops about the Bosnian Muslim city of Garajde. Uh, this town, you know, a somewhat large town, 70,000, 80,000 people, uh, was the center of conflict, but it's a little pocket of, of Muslim resistance, 20 or 30 miles behind the new borders of Bosnia uh, into Serbia. You know, President Izzet Begovic of, of Bosnia, you know, he refuses to give up Garajde. Milosevic doesn't want to give it up. It's too far into the territory. We've already settled this. Um, this town, though, is almost entirely Muslim. And Milosevic again relents, and he agrees that if the United States will pay for a road, he will allow a corridor through the mountains to be carved out to include Garage. Uh, it's a, a road from basically Sarajevo to Garage to you know, connect it to Bosnia. He gives up some more land, 
But of course, you know, this undoes the percentages uh, balances. So somewhere else, Milosevic wants to make up room. But they take Milosevic into the mapping room at Wright-Patterson. The United States uh, Air Force, you know, personnel flies him around like a video game. These 3D maps that they used for the bombing of his country, of Serbia, uh, just weeks before that brought him to the peace table. It's explained to him, you know, this is the same program that we use for, for not just mapping, but for bombing. And something he had never seen. It's like Google Earth 1995 style. And a guy's flying him around with a little joystick and he's looking at, you know, places that he knows. Um, it's an impressive display of American technology. And more importantly, I feel like of American military might. You know, we ask Eric about this process of, of bringing in Garage Day, which really would be a big breakthrough in the negotiations. And also, again, the role that modern cartography would play. You know, how much power does this nation have, right? Yeah. How powerful is the U.S. at this point? Look at this technology they can bring to the table. Um, I can zoom in and see, you know, the, the, the village that I grew up in. Um, you know, no one's been able to, uh, until that point, I'm sure this is the first time he's laid eyes on that type of technology. So um, I think in two different way, ways, it shows sort of power of, uh, you know, from the information side, what they can bring to the table. But it also shows, you know, I think fairness or openness, it's transparent. I think that might be the best phrase to use. It's a very transparent way to share information. But it, it's kind of out there. So in order to bring that community in, that village in, they had to establish a road to get there. Today, there's, you know, before this, there really wasn't a road um, to connect Garage Day uh, with Sarajevo. Right, so, and it's kind of back in Serbian in Serbian land at that point. Yeah. Yep, yep. So when you when you look at the maps and how it's drawn, it really is this little finger that kind of jets out uh, to encompass Garage Day. So again, if you're if you're trying to locate a road and you've got a a paper map. There's a lot of variability, and it's kind of a tough tool. It's not the right tool for the job. Um, using digital cartography, using GIS, um, you know, they're really able to, if you can imagine using like a Google Earth type view of 3D flyovers going through the mountains. Um, you know, if you're going to locate a road, you need to find the right, uh, the right conditions. You know, make sure it's not going up the side of a mountain. Um, so using GIS and, and digital cartography made that super simple. But, but, yeah, it's really interesting when you look at the maps – uh, to see this little finger that juts out and encompasses Garage Day, just to make it work from a percentage standpoint and, and making sure that the, the land transfer was, was legit. Garage Day and the area of a Garage Day road is settled, like Eric said, but this throws off the percentages. So after they build this road, the, you know, they map out this road and, and we've got a deal. The Bosnians agree. The Serbians agree. Holbrook and his guys actually break out some champagne. There's a lot of drinking at this, uh, whether it's Milosevic or, or, or the Croat leaders or, and the personnel, the U.S. personnel, but there was a lot of drinking and socializing done on the base. Um, but they break out a bottle of champagne. It's two in the morning. You know, this is the day before the negotiations are supposed to end. You know, the word on the street is that they're not going to get it done. They tried their best, but there won't be peace in Yugoslavia. And they realize around four in the morning that they haven't talked to the third party. Remember, there's Croatians here as well. There's Croats, Bosnians, and Serbs. They tell the Croats, you know, a lot of the land that is given back to the Serbians of, from this road really was Croatian uh, land, land that the Croatians had recently taken um, during, you know, when, Ohio, when uh, the United States were, were bombing. And the Croatians say absolutely not. They say there's a zero, zero, you know, point zero zero percent chance that this will work. 
And just like that, it was just for maybe an hour, they thought they had peace, and it's blown open again. President Clinton calls. He leans on everybody. But basically, they wake up the next morning, and they're all meeting. And it's just not going to happen. There's some other differences uh, between the Bosnians and the Serbians that, that cropped up. And basically, the percentages in the maps aren't going to work. And as the Americans sit around debriefing and lamenting how close they came, the leaders, Tudjman from Croatia and Milosevic, they make a deal. They agree to leave the fate of the city of Birchko up to international arbitration to be decided within a year. And suddenly they burst in right before they go out there to, to give a press conference to say it didn't work out. And Milosevic breaks in and says, we have a deal. And they go to, this time they make sure they check with all three parties. The Croatians say, yeah, we've, we've got a deal. We don't like it, but we'll do it. The Bosnians say the same. We don't love it, but we'll do it. Holbrook and, and Warren Christopher run out of the room. He says, let's just, let's announce it. Let's have President Clinton go announce it. And by the, just the skin of their teeth, hours left in the negotiations, finally we have peace in Dayton, Ohio. We have peace in Europe. Their determination, along with the presidents of Bosnia, Croatia, and Serbia, have reached a peace agreement to end the war in Bosnia, to end the worst conflict in Europe since World War II. After nearly four years of 250,000 people killed, two million refugees, atrocities that have appalled people all over the world, the people of Bosnia finally have a chance to turn from the horror of war to the promise of peace. The presidents of Bosnia, Croatia, and Serbia have made a historic and heroic choice. They have heeded the will of their people. Whatever their ethnic group, the overwhelming majority of Bosnia's citizens and the citizens of Croatia and Serbia want the same thing. They want to stop the slaughter. They want to put an end to the violence and war. They want to give their children and their grandchildren a chance to lead a normal life. Today, thank God, the voices of those people have been heard. I wonder if we could ask the three presidents to stand up and for us to join them standing and express our appreciation for what they've done in Dayton and our hopes for the future. was an imperfect piece. And to say it wasn't, you know, our, our guest, Professor Dragostinova, really does point that out. It was imperfect. There was a lot of power sharing. It's still a very a government that, that barely works now. But for 23 years, this piece is held. Like for one example, you know, President Izabigovic uh, of, of Bosnia, when they go into the negotiations in Dayton, he wants this land to have nine different presidents. Nine different presidents. They get it down to three presidents. Milosevic was a little less, uh, he says that, you know, I just want to have seven presidents. Can we work seven? The United States think this is crazy. But they get it down to three presidents. We talked to our guest about the imperfect peace. Because there have been 
a lot of actually comparisons made between the Bosnian war and the Syrian war that is still going on, and particularly between the siege of Damascus in Bosnia and the siege of Sarajevo, uh, which the world community allowed to happen for that long without intervening. And we see, uh, I mean, heartbreaking uh, uh, scenes, uh, um, you know, still uh, developing uh, in uh, Syria as well. What the Dayton Accord shows is that when the world community has the resolve, it is able to bring parties together around a negotiating table and force them to negotiate and reach uh, uh, some sort of agreement for a peace. That may not be the perfect peace, but still we have to debate, is it better to have an imperfect peace or is it better to have, uh, you know, the continuation of war? So the Dayton Accords end the war. They end the the war successfully. And actually, uh, they managed to preserve the peace for the uh, following, how many years do we have? Uh, 25? 23. 23 years, right? So there is no war. There hasn't been a war in Bosnia since uh, the um, the signing of, of uh, the treaty. However, what the Dayton Accords um, ultimately do is create an extremely dysfunctional political entity. A country that literally cannot function uh, because it is based on the idea of bringing the three nations together and preserving the integrity of the country by forcing the three parties to govern together. So, uh, in the aftermath of the war, we have Bosnia and Herzegovina, which consists of two entities. One is the Serbian Republic, and the other one is the Federation uh, of Bosnia and Croatia. In order for this country to function, its constitution basically mandates that all of the three ethnic groups have to have representatives in each of the political bodies that uh, that, uh, basically uh, govern the country. So there always has to be one Croat, one Serb and one Bosnian Muslim in any ministry, in any committee, uh, in in any uh, political organ uh, that executes any policy. And that creates a country that, um, instead of overcoming uh, ethnic ways of thinking, actually enshrines ethnicity as the main principle of the organization of that uh, of that country. And that creates many problems because ultimately people cannot say, you know what, I don't want to be associated with the Serbs or I don't want to be thought of as a Croat or, you know, fine, I'm a Bosnian Muslim, but that's not that important for me. That's not something that I need to be thinking about every day. Virtually impossible uh, uh, under the structure uh, of this uh, new entity that's created. One of the questions that that historians that I've always asked after I started studying this, this conflict and the peace process, the many failed peace processes that you see from the British and the French uh, from 1991 to 1995. But the real question is, why did it take so long? Why did it take so long to get peace? And why did it take so long for the Western allies, NATO and the United States, to get involved? It reminds me of the Syrian crisis that way. A crisis that maybe if we had gotten involved earlier and forced these parties to the negotiating table, maybe we could have made something happen. I'm not saying it would have been that easy in Syria, for the Obama administration, but it certainly um, did not go the way that it should have, as we see the same terrible dictator in power still killing his citizens, still gassing his citizens, 
seven years after the conflict started. But this this conflict went on for four or five years itself and had, you know, not as many, but still many, many, over 100,000 deaths. We ask our guest, why does the West take so long? As a historian, I cannot say that this surprises me at all. If we look back in history, at the one example that should shock us right away is the situation of the German Jews fleeing Germany in the 1930s. Who helped them? How many Jews did the United States take in the 1930s? What happened to these people? They got stranded? No one intervened to do anything about these refugees. There were no plans taken uh, made in order to accommodate them. And ultimately, when the, when the war evolved, uh, World War II, that is, I mean, there's a lot of discussion out there. Did the Allies know about the Holocaust, right? Uh, and why didn't they bomb uh, the, the trains or whatnot, right? So historically speaking, we do see that there is a reluctance of the world to intervene. Even if we look at conflicts today, how long is it going to take us to do something about Syria? Are we going to stop the genocide that is currently happening uh, with the Rohingyans? It is just, those, this is sort of like the nature of uh, uh, basically what the great powers do. And we see generally reluctance to intervene in conflicts. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today is To End a War. It's the memoir of the peace process, the Dayton Peace Accords, by the lead negotiator Richard Holbrook, Ambassador Holbrook, the late great American diplomat who spearheaded these efforts, the bulldozers he's called in some circles. He walks us through those times uh, as he you know, did shuttle diplomacy, as it's called the shuttle, going from Paris to Geneva to Moscow, back to Washington, back to Belgrade. Um, a really cool book if you're into statesmanship, if you're into, if you're a negotiator, a lawyer like me, I thought this book was really interesting. Again, to end a war by Richard Holbrook, summarizes this entire Dayton Peace Accord process. You know, as we wrap up, you ask, well, where are we now? Did the Dayton Peace Accords work? I would say yes. A few years later, there's a, a breakaway Serbian province called Kosovo that you may have heard of. The United States, Bill Clinton goes to war there in 1999 against the Serbians. Directly a United States-Serbian war over the breakaway province of Kosovo. Slobodan Milosevic would end up becoming a convicted a tried war criminal. He died in custody in The Hague for his actions in Kosovo. The men like Miladic and Karadic were finally found, put on trial, uh, and found guilty of war crimes for the Bosnian War. The Croatians and the Bosnians and the Serbs still live in peace. Sarajevo is a city on the rebound. Again, multicultural, um, 
it has a very stagnated government, uh, again, because of things like having three presidents, like we talked about, um, and just the way that the peace process went down. But I would say the Dayton Peace Accords worked. Guys, that's going to do it for episode 14. Uh, we've only got one episode left. Again, it's a live episode. It's Sunday, May 13th. We'll release that to you on the, on the Monday or the Tuesday after. But the easiest way you can hear it is to come check it out in person. Go to columbuspodcastfestival.com. Buy your Sunday tickets, only 20 bucks. Uh, they've got you know beers and, and food at the, at the Short North Stage. All kinds of shows before us. It starts at 1 o'clock, I think, that day. Um, and we go on at 8.30. So buy your tickets. Uh, Columbus Podcast Festival, a lot of cool shows that day. Uh, before us, like I said, we'll be there around 6. If you want to hang out, come introduce yourself. We'll be selling T-shirts. Our Great Ohio V the World T-shirts will be available. If you have show ideas, it's a great way to get in touch with me. Again, that's Sunday, May 13th at the Columbus Podcast Festival. We'll be doing a live show. Our season finale, episode 15, Ohio versus Punishment, will be with comedian Mark Lucas. Thank you to our guest, Eric LeBeo, GIS consultant, mapping uh, modern cartographer extraordinaire. Again, friend of the show, a listener. I really appreciate him coming on. Um, great guy. And again, hopefully we'll have to have him back. And a special thanks to Professor Theodora uh, Dragostinova. She was amazing. I had such a good time talking with her. We talked for well over an hour um, about all these issues. And we talked a lot about you know, Syria and other parts of, of Eastern Europe that she really explained to me. It's a part of the, of the world we know so little about, yet it's crazy to me. It's Europe. It's a place we should understand better. So I hope episode 14 gave you a little insight into that blind spot that I had that I feel like many of you had for Eastern Europe the Bosnian War, and the former Yugoslavia. Uh, and that's what this show's about, man. We're breaking new ground. There's really not a lot of, of podcasts out there about the Bosnian War, certainly not about the Dayton Peace Process, the D Dayton Peace Accords, um, that were finally signed in Paris in 1996. Uh, so great job by the city of Dayton. And, and thank you guys so much for listening. Like I said, we're back with one more episode, and then it'll be season three. We'll take some time off this summer. Uh, we're doing some writing, we're doing some research, we're doing some new interviews, uh, and we'll be back for season three. But catch our finale Sunday, May 13th, Columbus Podcast Festival at the Short North Stage. Uh, follow us on Facebook, email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Follow our Instagram, ohiovtheworldpodcast, uh, and we're dropping a Twitter after, the, uh, after season two ends, so you can check us out there uh, as well. We'll, we'll drop our, our Twitter handle on you next episode. Uh, and you can start following us that way as we learn how to tweet. So, guys, thank you so much. It's been an incredible season. So many guests. Uh, and like we said, we got one more. We'll see you next time on Ohio vs. the World. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events 
that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.